0: Amen. Thank you, Ron. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We are in the middle of a series uh, throughout this spring, heading towards the cross of Jesus, uh, which we will celebrate on Palm Sunday, which is just in two weeks, believe it or not, and then uh, on to his resurrection on Easter Sunday, which is only three weeks away. Uh, So it's time to get excited and start to prepare for those things. And so we're going to continue this morning looking at the, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, in chapter 27, as Jesus stands before Pilate this morning, uh, continuing on his journey towards his death and then ultimately his resurrection. So if you have a Bible and you want to read along with me, you can. If not, don't worry. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It will also be on the screen behind me uh, for Matthew 27, verses 1 and 2, and then skipping down to verses 11 through 31. Okay, let's read together this morning. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas, or Jesus Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife Sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd and asked for Barabbas to, to destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged, Jesus delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the governor's headquarters and gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. This is God's word. Uh, These verses at the end of this selected passage here in verses 27 through 31 have always really Astonished me. And so I'd like to start there. If you can just imagine this with me. Pilate's soldiers clothe Jesus in a scarlet robe. And they put a crown upon his head. And they put a scepter in his hand. And they bow down before him as if he were a king. But they are not worshipping him. They're mocking him. Because you see the crown is not a crown of gold inlaid with precious jewels. It is a crown of thorns. And the scepter is not made of iron. It is a reed, is a flimsy thing to signify his weakness. I mean, this whole thing happening here at the end of these verses is a parody. They're making fun of him. They're mocking him. He's no king. I mean, look at him. He's bloody and beaten, defeated. He's pathetic. He's lost. He's been conquered. <laughs> but there's a great deal of irony in this scene because though the soldiers can't imagine it standing before them, in this moment is not some provincial political upstart, this is not some ruler of a small inconsequential people under Roman occupation, this man is not a would-be rival of Caesar, this is the king of heaven, this is the God of the universe they are spitting on and they are mocking the one who breathed the breath into their lungs by which they mock him. And yet it's come to this. Wicked, ungrateful men cursing and mocking their creator. And we are me. I am left scratching my head. Why would God do this? Why would he subject his son to this? What, I mean, what is this about? How is this even possible? G- Jesus' humiliation is just too much to bear for me. And yet the scripture is very clear that this is no accident. I mean, this is no accident. This is the eternal purpose and counsel of God the Trinity coming to fruition in human history. I mean, this bloody beaten man, he's not lost. He's not been conquered. He's conquering. He's winning. He's saving. But it's just upside so down. I mean, Jesus is the true king. He is the rightful king. But as Isaiah the prophet, we read it just a minute ago, says he, he's a king who looks like no king at all. There's no beauty or majesty about him that would cause us to admire him. He's a king. Who bears a cross. And there's a very concrete point. I think of application. In this for us. And that means. It's just this. It's that taking up our cross. And following this king. In these verses. Which we see here. Which is what is commanded of us to do. Entering into his dying life. For the sake of others. This is going to lead to a completely unique. Strange. Upside down. Radically. Countercultural. Way of living. I mean The cross of Jesus is going to shape all the different aspects of our lives. It's going to shape and affect the way we think about power and money and relationships, and particularly this morning, and I'm going to kind of choke this out, even our politics. Now, they say that there are two taboo subjects, religion and politics, and I have the distinct privilege and pleasure of talking about both of them at the same time. And so pray for me. Uh, and so I want to see three things this morning from this passage, okay, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. The first is, I want us to look at Jesus's political strategy.
1: There's a there's a,
0: a particular political strategy Jesus shows here, and I'm going to call it revolutionary ambiguity. What in the world is that? We're going to try to explain that. I want us to see this this political strategy of revolutionary ambiguity, and then see both the practicality of it and the power for it. And those, those are the three things we're going to do this morning, okay? Jesus' political strategy of revolutionary ambiguity and the practicality of it and then the power for it. So let's just start right here, okay? As much as I would like for it to not be, <laughs> I really think that this passage is about the cross and politics or the politics of the cross. Now, our word politics comes from a Greek word polis which referred to a city-state in ancient Greece. So politics is your theory of government or how human communities should be ordered under government or there's a deeper issue I think in in this this idea of politics and that is that there it, politics is a p- particular social theory of power and how you use power to change things for the better politics your your politics is the way you understand how you get things done the way you get the work done in society so you think through the issues of poverty and abortion and and you know care for the elderly and, and etc so how do you attack these things how do you use whatever power and influence you have to bring about change in the particular problem areas of a society for the good of the whole community. That's what we mean by politics. And the reason I say this is the focal point of this passage is Matthew 27, 11. If you look there, Pilate asks Jesus a question. He says, are you king of the Jews? Now, don't think Pilate is inquiring about whether Jesus is Messiah. That's not Pilate's interest at all. This is not a theological question. Okay, He's not asking if Jesus is the long-awaited king that's coming. He's trying to uncover Jesus' political ambitions. He wants to know if Jesus has a political agenda. You know, does Jesus see himself as a king? Does he see himself as a rival to Herod? Or worse, does he see himself as a rival to Pilate and to Caesar? So the summary of Pilate's question can be put this way. What does Jesus in his movement have to do with the political, p- political structures of that day? And then by consequence of ours as well. And so let's look and see how Jesus answers this here. You see how he answers the question in verse 11? You have said so. Well, thank you, Jesus, for all that information. Right? You've said so. Now, what does that mean? I mean, what? what? It's the same answer that he's given to Caiaphas in his questioning before the council. And, he, and it's kind of the same answer he kind of gives throughout this whole process. But what does it mean? And most of the commentators agree that this is a brilliant answer on the part of Jesus, because the way it is stated, uh, the the kind of the point that the commentators bring out in this is that it is neither a denial nor an affirmation. Or you could say it this way: it's both a denial and an affirmation. But either way, Jesus Jesus is riding the fence here. There's there's some ambiguity in his answer. In other words, Jesus could have said, "No, no, I, I'm not a political leader." He could have said, "Yes." you're right, I am a political leader, but his answer is both yes and no. His answer is both I am, but I am not. And this is what I think he means. Jesus is saying, yes, Pilate, you're right. What I'm doing has everything to do with political power and the structures of government and civil leadership. And there are going to be radical sweeping changes because of my work. My cross will bring huge political ramifications. However, I'm not a political leader in your categories. I don't do politics the way you do. I don't play by your rules. I'm not a warrior king. I'm not here. My agenda is not to gain political power. I'm a suffering servant. I'm here to give my power away to save others. There's another place in Matthew's gospel where they come to him. You might remember from a couple weeks ago, and they say, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus, you know, being ever clever, has this, this great statement that is just crystal clear. He says, oh, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. And everybody's walking around going, you're not helping me. And again, it's the point. In both cases, in both these cases where this issue is kind of brought up, Jesus is deliberately and significantly and revolutionarily ambiguous. And it's this ambiguity that is distinctively Christian. It has to be there. Uh, Tim Keller, who's um, a pastor in our denomination, he preached a sermon on a text, parallel text in Mark. He put it this way, way, comparing a Christian approach to politics to other major, major world religions. He says it this way, he says, if you say to Buddha, are you a political leader? The answer is clear, no. If you say to Muhammad, are you a political leader? The answer is clear, yes. However, if you say to Jesus, are you a political leader? The answer is clear, yes and no. And then he goes on, he says, if you don't see the difference, you don't understand Christianity. Now see, if you're not a Christian, here's what I want you to see. I mean, I hope this will be helpful, what Tim Keller is getting at. What Jesus is getting at in his answer to Pilate is just this. If, if you're a Christian, on the one hand, you can't be unconcerned with the political, social structures and policies of the world... ...that are broken and are destroying people's lives and need to be fixed. Buddha and Buddhism is otherworldly. It's otherworldly, but not Christianity. I mean, Buddhism claims to be a spiritual movement that's only concerned with individual spiritual enlightenment of, of persons. But Christianity is a spiritual movement and a political movement, and a social movement, Jesus has come to make all things new, and there are things that need to change, and it's our job to make sure they change. At the same time, if you're a Christian, you can't take up the sword, right? That's not the strategy. You can't grasp for power and try to bring about change through power plays and backroom deals and coercion. That's the world's politics. So Islam, on this hand, Islam is militant. Even the more refined versions of it, right? The the radical, the, the agenda of radical Islam is to gain political power and then to use that power to advance Islam in the world and to punish infidels and even smarter Muslims. I read an article in the the New York Times or someplace this week about a movement in Egypt where it's a more kind of refined um, movement of Islam where the goal is just is this to gain a political foothold to do whatever they you have to do to gain a political foothold and then through threat of violence or in the more refined version, just through sheer force of numbers. Force a radical fundamentalist agenda upon the rest of society and ultimately the rest of the world. But Christians don't do that. They don't do... At least we shouldn't do that. Christians are not militant. We don't take up the sword and kill people in the name of Jesus. We're not to be combative or violent or extreme. This is exactly the point Jesus makes to Pilate in John's account. In his gospel, he says... My kingdom is not of this world. If it were so, my service would be fighting that I might not be delivered, delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. So you see, even though Jesus' answer is yes, of course there are political and social you know, implications and ramifications. The answer is also no, because the goal in the end of his life was not a throne, it was the cross. Jesus won't get his work done the way Pilate might expect. It won't be trying to seize power from Rome. He's going to give his power away. He's going to suffer... And he's going to die. Now let me say it another way. Jesus, Jesus is opposed to two polarizing approaches to politics and cultural engagement that were around in his day and are still around in ours. On the one hand, there was this group called the Essenes. And the Essenes basically believed that it was their job just to pull out from society and live a holy life and wait for Messiah to come. And so they all went out to the desert and they formed this kind of community out in the desert and they kind of did their own thing. Right? So the Essenes tried to withdraw. They would be people who say, no, of course you don't pay taxes. Don't get involved politically. Just come out and be holy. They had no political agenda at all. On the other side of things, there were the Zealots. And the Zealots were a political party of people that wanted... They, they, all their talk was about grabbing political power and using it to bring about the kingdom of God on the earth. And Jesus is right in the middle of the two. That's the point. He's right there in the middle He's not like the Essenes. In other words, he doesn't want his followers just to pull out in the withdrawal and to not be involved. He's not like the Zealots either. He doesn't want his followers to put their hope in political power. That's not the way the kingdom advances in the earth. God's purposes are not advanced through taking control of government. And so what we're being taught here, be politically minded, be involved, work for righteousness, correct justice, deal with the issues of the day, make sure the are cared for, critique and fight against unjust laws, Do all of that work, but don't forget that political power is penultimate. You know what that means? It means it's an inadequate vehicle for the kind of change that Jesus means to bring about through his life, death, and resurrection. And this is what he's teaching us here. Is Christianity a political movement? Yes and no. Is Christianity a conservative movement? Yes and no. Is Christianity a liberal movement? Yes and no. So that's Jesus' political strategy. Anybody confused? I am. So we need to talk about some of the practicalities of this as well. And I want to focus on something that's right here in the text as we think about the second point. If you have a Bible that prints the words of Jesus in red, there's going to be one thing that should probably stand out to you in this passage, and that is that in the whole passage, there are only four words that are in red, only two in the Greek. In this whole deal, these 31 voices, verses, Jesus says four words in the whole scene. He refuses to speak up for himself against the accusations of the Jews. You see that there in verses 10 and 11, or 11 through 14. He um, he doesn't retaliate. He refuses to pick up power and counter what's happening to him. He stands silently bearing their accusations. And if you look at verse 13, this really confuses Pilate. And he asks Jesus, why? I mean, why Jesus, why won't you stand up and defend yourself? I mean, Pilate knows their accusations are ridiculous. We're even told later, he knows this because of envy that they brought him And yet, Jesus gives no answer. With one word, he could have shut them down and ended the whole thing, and he refuses to talk. And Matthew adds, not to a single charge he does not answer, to add emphasis. And I just read this, and I thought, you know, the silence of Jesus is deafening here. And of course, this is exactly what Isaiah the prophet talked about, right? In Isaiah 53, which we read just a few minutes ago, from verses 6 and 7... He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And the, the, the prophets and then the gospel writers are meditating on the fact that here is Jesus. Here's Jesus in the middle of being condemned unjustly, and yet he opens not his mouth. I mean, the lamb is silent because it's overwhelmed with fear. It knows what's coming. And Jesus knows what's coming too. He's gotten a glimpse of the horror of the wrath of God into which he's headed, and yet here he does nothing to rescue himself. He doesn't protest, he doesn't fight back, he doesn't stand up for himself. He stands by silently. It's remarkable. It's a part of his strategy of submission to his Father's will. And sending him into the world. In John 10, he says it this way. Jesus does. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own free will. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it back up. And in other words, nobody takes my life from me. I'm the one who lays it down. I mean, the reality is, is with one flick of his finger, he could do away with Pilate and all of them. And yet he doesn't. He doesn't use his power and authority to save himself. He willingly suffers. He willingly lays his life down. And Pilate, we're told in verse 14, Pilate's amazed. You see that word there? I mean, he's amazed. I mean he Pilate is smarter than we give him credit for. He's not some stupid politician. I mean he's very he is very insightful, and he he I think he really knows what's going on here. I mean, he perceives that Jesus is more than the Jews perceive him to be. He's just a coward. He knows how things work. He hears Jesus' enemies using their power to harm him, and yet Jesus is laying down his power to forgive and save them. And he's just amazed. And this is what makes Jesus' revolution different from every other revolution that's ever happened in the whole world. Tim Keller, again, says this is astounding. He says every revolution that has ever happened in the past happens like this. You take power and you exclude or destroy your enemies. But Jesus Christ is about to start a revolution through loving his enemies and forgiving his enemies. And this, I think, this silence of Jesus in this passage is the pattern for our political strategy This silence, this quiet submission to his Father's will. This is the way we get our work done too. So a couple passages from Paul. And I wish I had them. I should have told Susan and she would have put them on the screen for us. But I wish I had them for you to see. But 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11. Just listen to what Paul says. He writes to the church at Thessalonica. We urge you to aspire to live quietly. We urge you to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own business, and to get to work. And then again in First Timothy 2, 1 and 2. I urge, this is to, to Timothy from Paul. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high position that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Godly and dignified in every way. And so even the scripture calls us as followers of Jesus to imitate him in his silence and being quiet and living Quiet lives, but don't think, okay, let's... Don't think that that word quiet there in those verses means inactivity or uninvolved. It doesn't mean inactive or uninvolved. It is a posture of faith. That's what it's really getting at. It's it's how do you live out the reality of faith in the midst of all the chaos of the things that are going on in the world. So I would translate it, don't make a a fuss. Right? Don't be a disturber of the peace. I mean, Jesus' silence wasn't passivity. It was an expression of his faith. He knew... And he wants us to know that the power that is going to get the work done is God's power. So by consequence, live quietly. I mean, things are what they are, right? I mean, this is the posture of faith for a Christian in the world. Things are what they are. But God's in control. And so do you see So pray. Pray. Ask him to work. Rely on his power. And then get the work. Live a godly life full of good works. Three times, and we're in this passage. We're told that Jesus is delivered over in verse two, and then down in verse twenty-six, and also uh, as Pilate delivers him over to be, <clears throat> to be flogged in verse twenty-four and 25 and, 20, twenty-five and twenty-six. Three times this this word phrase this he is delivered over, and it's a word that is deliberately used. To mean uh, that Jesus is powerless in this whole event, he is just being—he is at the whim and the beck and call of the, re, the religious leaders and the civil authorities. That he is being delivered over; they are using their power to bring about all these things that are happening to him. And, but what, what's fascinating, and what's amazing, is is the reason Jesus can face down those powers the way he does here is he knows that the ultimate power and authority was not Pilate. In Pilate's hand, but it was God in heaven, and that in Acts two twenty three, we're told that God is the one that's delivering him over to Pilate. That God here in these all this stuff that's happening, God is working out His purpose and plan for the salvation of all people, and Jesus understands that real power is not Pilate, real power is not the authority of the the religious leaders. Real power is God on high who ordains all things according to the counsel of His will, and underneath that authority and underneath that recognition of God's sovereign power and authority over everything that happens, even in these dark moments of his life, he's quiet. And look what it produced. It produced amazing courage and fortitude in him. I mean, if you just think about Jesus in the scene, I mean, I'm, 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 I marvel at the interpersonal peace and the quietness of heart. It's not just that he's quiet with his mouth. It's quietness of heart that allows him to remain silent here. He doesn't appear phased at all. He's not afraid. His confidence is not shaken in the least bit, but at the same time, if you notice, there's this unbelievable humility that issues forth in him showing to us a different paradigm, a new paradigm and pattern for using his power. And this is what this is what we so desperately need. We need the same inner peace, this fortitude, this quietness of heart, and this new pattern for using power, this humility that Jesus is showing in order to live a quiet life. It takes incredible courage to be quiet. Right? To make sure, you know, not make sure your voice is heard. It takes incredible courage to be content, to go unnoticed, or to even be misunderstood. And if you're quiet long enough, you'll eventually be forgotten. I mean, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so you have to be emptied of all self-concern to be able to live like that. You have to know you're in God's hands and that He's patiently working out His purposes and He's not forgotten you so you don't have to grasp for control, but you have to have humility too. Do you see that? I mean, in order to live a quiet life, you really do have to be possessed by a humility that's beyond your ability to produce, because it means to live this quiet life that the scripture is calling us to, it means you've got to give up on trying to do quote-unquote big things for God and just do what's right in front of you. You have to content yourself with being behind the scenes and unnoticed and not on the nightly news. You have to be emptied of all selfish ambition in order to Now what happened with Jesus' followers in the first few centuries after he left is Christianity spread to such an extent that within 250 to 300 years, the whole Roman Empire had been, okay, quote-unquote, Christianized. But how did that happen? I mean, how is it that that political movement started by this one man who's going to be on a cross in about... Five hours. How in the world was it that in 250 to 300 years that this man and his movement had conquered the known Roman world? It wasn't through gaining political worldly power, but through the sacrifice and suffering of his followers for the sake of others. For the first 300 years, the church was marginalized and persecuted, there was no power or social standing for the early Christians to leverage. And so what we see, how this quietness of life gets worked out, is what we see is the early church didn't look to the state uh, to solve all the problems of their, their day. They became the solution to the social and political problems of their day. And it's through their lives of humble, working, submission to the Father's plan, living quiet lives, busy, active, doing good works, uh, that brought about the revolution that Jesus has begun to start. Now, let me give you just one example. One example um, from the early days of the of the church. Um, the, the Christians were really, really involved in social health reform, which is uh, an interesting parallel to our own day and time and what a lot of the political dialogue is about these days. But what would happen is in these ancient cultures and cities, the plague would come in, and every you know 50 years or so, there would be this huge sweeping plague, and up to... Uh, you know, a third or a quarter of the city would die from this plague. And what would happen is, is when the plagues came, the people of the cities would take off for the countryside as fast as they possibly could to get away from the spread of the contagion. Uh, But what happened was, is in the early centuries, uh, the, the Christians adopted a different strategy. They refused to do that. And the early Christians decided that they would stay in the cities and they would take care of their family and their friends and their neighbors who were getting sick, even though they knew how dangerous it was. And so one social commentator, a guy named Ronnie Stark has written a book <clears throat> that chronicles this force, And here's his description of an eyewitness account of how the Christians acted in this day and time. He says, quote, Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of their neighbor. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And many died, for they were infected by their neighbors. But when they departed life, they did so so serenely and cheerfully accepting their pains many christians in nursing and curing their neighbors transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead just one little just i just one little snapshot of what it looks like that kind of neighbor love that social policy on the part of the early church brought sweeping social and political changes and arrangements to the culture that little Self-sacrifice, self-denial, that little cross they bear. And so, if that's really what we're being called to here, then we have to wrap up and ask this third question. Then, how in the world, how in the world do we find the power to live like that? Do you see that? My neighbor's sick. If I help him, I might get sick too. I might even die. But I'm going to go and I'm going to help. And I'm going to risk my own death so that my neighbor can get well. I mean, where do you find... You see, where do you find the courage to do this on the way to, on the way to church this morning? I'm hot, Ashley's cold. Or no, sorry, other way around. I'm cold, Ashley's hot. Is the air going to be turned off so that I'm no longer cold? Is it going to stay on so that she's no longer hot? Right? The baby's crying in the middle of the night. I'm tired. She's tired. Who's going to become more tired? And who's going to stay asleep? There, do you see? There are a million. There are a million million things like this that happen. You know, my friend, uh, his car doesn't work, and he can't get to work. My car works. I mean, my, you know, I mean, there there are a million ways. There are a million ways we can approach these things. So, where do we find the power and the courage to live uh, in the way the early Christians did? How do we get the inner peace that Jesus had? To bear with injury, to endanger ourselves for the sake of loving people. I mean, those early Christians were amazing. They were able to handle the loss of their comfort, the loss of their safety, the loss of their money, even the prospect of the loss of their lives. I mean, how do you how do you get that kind of courage? And how do you get the humility that Jesus had? How do you how do you live in this new pattern for using power, not idolizing power, not pursuing it, but using it not using it to save yourself, but giving it away to help other people and serve other people? I mean, that's that's a people that can change a city. That's a people that can get a bunch of stuff done. A people like that is a completely different political strategy. So how do we become like that? Where do we find the power to live that way? And it's just here we have to see the gospel of substitution. And here's what I mean. Let me just wrap up with this. Pilate, if, as this passage goes on, Pilate offers to let either Jesus Barabbas or Jesus the Christ go free. This is his solution. Every year at the feast, the, the Romans would give back a prisoner to the people you know, to the Jewish people. So Barabbas is there, and he's guilty. He's an insurrectionist and a murderer. And we're told in verse 16 that he was notorious. I love that, right? He's notorious. He's a well-known sinner. Jesus is innocent. I mean, even Pilate knows this. I mean, he already came out to the crowd and told him, I find no fault with this guy. And yet, what the crowd wants, what the crowd appeals to Pilate to do is to switch them, substitute them, put the innocent where the guilty should be, Put the guilty where the innocent should be. Punish the innocent one. They yell, crucify him. Let the guilty go free. That's what's happening here. And of that, of course, is a picture or an illustration of the gospel. That's what Jesus' death is all about. That's why he's come into the world. He's taking our place. He's taking our guilt upon himself. He's taking our sin upon himself. And he's dying on the cross in our place. He was innocent. And though he was innocent, he's going to be treated by God the Father as guilty, tried and condemned so that we who are guilty, like Barabbas, notorious sinners might be treated as if we were innocent, forgiven, and set free. Jesus is going to die so that we might live. That's the gospel. And that's the answer to the question, how do you get the same courage and humility? I mean, how do you get the courage and the humility to not have to do great things, to not make sure your voice is heard, to not speak into every single issue of the day, but just to live quietly, trusting God to work out His purposes, and to get busy with the work of becoming, becoming the solution to the problems of the day where do you get the courage and the humility to do that like the early christians did you see for them for the early christians jesus wasn't just an example he wasn't just an example they didn't say in other words well you know he died for others so we should follow his example and do the same thing no no he wasn't a good example he was their substitute They saw him substituting himself for them, and that became the power for their own sacrifice. You see, those early Christians, if you can imagine, the plague is raging, and the Christians stay, and they know that in staying, they're endangering themselves, and so they're caring for their sick neighbors, and they look at their neighbors, and they think, you know, if I stay and help my friend, I might get sick and die, but my friend might live, and then they thought, that's exactly what Jesus did for me. He died in my place so that I could be healed. And that's where the power comes from. He's not just an example. He's our substitute. You see, the only way we can help the poor become rich is by becoming poor ourselves. I mean, the only way we can help the sick become whole is by becoming sick. The only way we can help the dying find life is through dying ourselves. And that's entering into the dying life of Jesus, taking up our cross and following him. And that's the politics of the cross, not pursuing power not identifying solely with one political political movement. Not not taking whatever power we have, you know, and seeking to maximize it and using it to crush those who don't agree with us. But taking whatever power and influence we have and giving it up for the sake of others. And then quietly going about our business. Doing the work he's left to us to do. Becoming the solution to the problems we find. And trusting God, ultimately, uh, to do the work in his power. I mean, that's faith. And that that is, I realize, a very, very inadequate treatment of the conversation. But maybe it's a starting point for us to begin to say. I mean, Jesus has come to bring about a worldwide revolution. Not through the channels of worldly power and influence, but with small, insignificant people who live in small little cities with lots of great lakes to go Uh, You know, go swim in and, and ski on. I mean, this Jesus means to take this people and to make us the solution to the problems that our city faces and our world faces. If we would but give our lives to him and willingly take our cross and follow him. And so let's pray as we come to this table this morning that he would continue to do that work in us. Lord Jesus, we pray and we ask that you would come now Inform us as your people, come, Uh, take our lives and take our gifts and take our uh, whatever offering uh, we might have to you and multiply it. Uh, Come and take us, though we are few and insignificant and um, weak and frail and full of sin. Uh, And give us courage and humility that we might content ourselves with living quietly, busy with good works, trusting in you not despairing not despairing when the map on the on the TV shows red instead of blue or blue instead of red uh, but but getting to work realizing that the, that whoever's in power doesn't matter because you are the king of the universe you have all power and authority in heaven it's been given to you and we have direct access to you because of your finished work on our behalf and so you tell us to come to pray to seek you and then to get busy Lord help us to do that that you might be glorified in us, that you might bear fruit through us, that our city might come to know you. Uh, these are the things we pray for. Beaten Jesus in front of Pilate's soldiers is not a defeated king. He is uh, on his way to the cross and his resurrection, through which he will become a conquering king and will ascend to heaven and be given by his father all authority in heaven and earth. And he is reigning over the affairs of men and over the nations of the earth, and it is so it is to us. To look to Him because He is the one who promises to ride out into all the earth conquering. We are His people. And so we look to Him and we wait for Him. And we quietly go about our lives doing the work in front of us. Becoming the solution to the problems that our city and our, and our culture and our world face. Uh, but ultimately with our faith and our trust uh, in Him. And the only way you can do that is if you know without a shadow of a doubt that He is there. And He's for you. He's not forgotten you, that he sees you when nobody else does, and that's the promise of this benediction, that as you go to live quietly, not making a name for yourself, not making a big fuss, but just to get busy doing the work that's before you, to die for the sake of others the way he died for you, here's the promise that he sees you and that he's for you. It's in this benediction, so receive it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.